Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. Join us for a conversation with Sandra Steingraber and Michael Lerner. Sandra Steingraber, welcome to the New School. Thank you, my pleasure. You are a poet, an ecologist, a mother, uh, and a remarkable author of two truly extraordinary books, Living Downstream and Having Faith, as well as a book on the ecology and uh, human rights issues in Africa, Spoils of Famine, and a book of poetry called Post-Diagnosis. You are a cancer survivor, and many would say one of the principal inheritors of the legacy of Rachel Carson. You write with a clarity and command of style that is uh, rare among those who do science writing on environmental health issues. Uh, You are an expert and authority on breast cancer in the environment and more recently have been exploring premature puberty. You have two children, Faith and Elijah. And how old is Faith now? Faith is eight and Elijah is five. You know, the first question that came to me as I prepared for this conversation was, knowing all that you know about health and the environment, how does it feel to you as a mother raising two children in the world today? Well, I have to say of of the whole uh, resume of my life, I think just enumerated, the only part of it that was planned was my two children. Everything else (laughs) was kind of accidental. Um, I think for me as a cancer survivor, the experience of my pregnancies, um, my labor and deliveries, and, and then my ongoing daily experience as a mother is is the greatest joy in my life. Um, certainly, having children is an investment in the future in, in, in a way that I can't imagine any other experience kind of coming close to that, including the authoring of, of books that one also hopes will go on into the future and have an independent life apart from the author. So it, it's mostly been an, an experience of intense joy. At the same time, I think my awareness of the environmental health threats that are particularly acute for unborn fetuses, newborns, and children lead me to have a kind of expanded sense of my responsibility as a parent and I don't think that's qualitatively different than the responsibility everyone feels when they suddenly find themselves the father or mother to a new child. Um, I, I do think that all kinds of things that never crossed our radar screen before, suddenly we have to become experts in very quickly, like vaccination schedules, infant car seat recalls. You know, there's just a, a million things that suddenly you have to l- learn about that you never thought about before when you become a new parent. But for me, that responsibility includes, you know, the evidence linking um, air pollution to premature birth, to mercury contamination in fish, and learning disabilities. So suddenly, not only as an ecologist, am I responsible for um, starting a public conversation about the contaminants in air, food, and water, but it becomes part of my responsibility as a mother as well. And I don't really feel any 
sense of conflict between the joy of parenting and the responsibility of taking care of the environment, they seem to me all part of, they all spring from the love one feels for one's child, really. So I I don't think it's, it's any kind of conflict. And yet I realize I'm wired emotionally different than a lot of my readers in that. Uh, and I, I assume some of that wiring came from my cancer diagnosis, which for me happened at the very beginning of my adult life. So I really don't know what it would be like to be an adult w- without the specter of cancer. And I think because of that, I've, I've gotten a little bit hard hearted, if you will, so that I'm I'm able to read cancer registry data while taking a bath. <laughs> I'm able to read uh, the data on breast milk contaminants in one hand while nursing a baby in the other hand. So there is this kind of peculiar disconnect between the brain that operates as a biologist and the brain that operates as a mother. And I think it's in my life as a creative writer that I actually try to bring the two together and find a voice that can talk about the biological evidence and the need to take political action based on this evidence. Um, And then the, the love I have for my children that motivates some of this work so they do eventually come together, um, but in some senses they they exist in separate parts of my brain. And in fact, you were diagnosed with bladder cancer in 1979 between your sophomore and junior years. Uh, I believe you were an adopted child and grew up in Tazewell County. Is that how you pronounce it? That's in Illinois? it. Uh-huh. Uh, what was it like for you? As I can just hardly imagine, as a, a sophomore in college. Uh, to find you had bladder cancer. What what was your response? Um, well, there was a kind of immediate response, and then there was the, the, the more complicated response, I think, that all people with cancer face when they leave the hospital and reenter the, their lives. So the immediate response was not necessarily one of surprise. I was not the first in my family to have cancer. My mother had um, metastatic breast cancer, um, prior to my cancer diagnosis, and in fact, we were in treatment at the same time. And my uh, ongoing conversations with my mom, she was 44 at the time of her diagnosis, she's 76 now. Um, when we talk together now, you know, we joke about that she, her life is really Elizabeth Edwards' life minus the television cameras, mm-hmm. and that she was diagnosed with breast cancer uh, in, in her 40s as a, as a mother of young children, and then two years later she was stage 4, with bone metastases. Now, my mom is in the very small minority of women, 7%, I believe, who, who managed to live for a long time with uh, bone mats, and they apparently aren't going anywhere. Um, my mom has actually outlived three of her oncologists. So my whole teenage life was actually dis- defined by my mother's uh, cancer diagnosis. My aunt went on to get bladder cancer, in fact, died of the same kind of bladder cancer I was diagnosed with, Another member of my uh, extended family died at age 21 of colon cancer. And I actually went on to develop colon lesions in my 30s. So had I not known I was adopted, I could have correctly said that cancer ran in my family. And and the story would have a sort of seamless logic to it. And it does. But the fact that I'm adopted, I think, made me aware early on that what runs in families does not necessarily run in our genes or our chromosomes, and that families have many other things in common, like 
air supply and their drinking water and their diets and even occupations sometimes. And so as a, as a young biologist, I became very interested in, in non, the non-hereditary so-called risk factors for cancer. And the kind of cancer that I had, namely bladder cancer, turns out to be a quintessential environmental cancer. So when I started mucking around in the medical literature, it didn't take me too long to realize that there were many, many links to environmental links to bladder cancer. Now, that, so I wasn't surprised when I got cancer. That was as a biologist in the hospital, lying there. I had already, I already knew about cancer. I'd already seen it in my family. It was after I left the hospital and then tried to re-inhabit um, my identity as a cancer, as a as a college student um, and a high-achieving biology major that was complicated. And I spend a lot of time as a public speaker now talking to college students, and I have to explain this to people because I think we live in a much different age now. This was 1979, and that was in this what I think of as a 10-year period of time after Roe v. Wade and before the AIDS epidemic when we didn't have young people um, at risk for their life because of an unplanned pregnancy, nor were we losing young people because of AIDS. And really, that was a 10-year period of time, and that was the 10 years in which I came of age. And life on college campuses at that time was a sexual carnival. Even for all of us high-achieving biology nerds who spent our Friday nights in the organic chemistry lab or, you know, cutting up a shark or something in, in anatomy lab, um, it, was, it was a sexual time. And the kind of cancer that I had precluded me from using certain kinds of birth control. I was forever getting infections of all different kinds, and I felt as though in the middle of this kind of big sexual performance, somebody had reached out with a big cane and pulled me off stage. Uh I felt very isolated from my own generation. Mm. Um, And so I think I handled it in the same way I handled my mother's diagnosis when I was in high school. I simply studied a lot. I tried to become very good, and I I withdrew um, from my social group. Um, and it it kind of um, I feel like I had a totally different uh, rite of passage through college than all the other people who were my age, precisely because of the you know the uh, the, lo- the the nearby location of the bladder with the vagina and everything that goes along with that. I felt um, sexually changed as well as the kind of changes that every cancer patient goes through. And, and I became very aware as I, uh, the, the hospital that I received a lot of my follow-up treatment with, which was different than the hospital where I was diagnosed. I was actually visiting my parents at the time I was diagnosed and ended up having my surgery in my hometown hospital. But once I got back to college, then the rest of my care happened at the hospital just down the street from my dormitory. So I would literally walk from my dormitory, shed my college student clothes, put on the blue backless gown, and, and inhabit this different life. And it was a life where my my cohorts, my colleagues, were other people with bladder cancer, and, and they were all very much older than I was. And um, and yet we had this disease in common. And then when I would leave the hospital and, and put on my clothes and leave the gown behind and walk into the biology lab, I was now part of this other group of people, other 19- and 20-year-old high-achieving biology majors who were all having sex with each other, except I couldn't do that. And so... I sort of I was a citizen of both nations and neither nation, 
Um, and I, I did think very consciously about crossing that border, like wh- wh- in the two-block walk between my dormitory and the urology waiting room, wh- where did I change identities in, in, that, in that walk? Wow. Uh, and, so that, and, and, for, and to understand that, I needed literature. I really needed poetry, and that's when I decided in my junior year to declare a double major in English and biology, which is, you know, my way of rebelling. I'll, I'll be a double major. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because it was really poetry, it was really reading people like Adrian Rich and Sylvia Plath, even um, Shakespeare and William Blake, that gave me a way of understanding how people change their lives, how people change their identities, what crisis can do to a person's sense of self. Biology didn't offer me a lot. Um, it offered me a lot in understanding what might have caused my cancer, but I really needed literature, and that's how I ended up um, studying both creative writing and biology, and I've always done both. And now that I'm almost 48, I notice nobody asks me anymore what I'm going to do when I grow up. So right. <laughs> I figured out if you live long enough, you know, and never make up your mind, um, people quit asking, and, it, and it, it, it's as if you planned it, even though I didn't plan it. Do you have... Uh one of your poems by heart or your volume of poetry nearby and could you share one of your poems with us? Um, sure, I'd be glad to do that. Um, I'll read um, a short one. Um, there's a poem I wrote uh, about being afraid. Um, and uh, it's called Prefatory. I am often unsure how to begin as a bird who holds in her mouth the first twigs of a new nest and not far below the gray cat squinting in the full sun. I I embedded that in a section of poems about the cancer experience, although it doesn't really talk about cancer, because the sense of myself as someone who was fearful of starting big, complicated projects because, you know, I think the experience of having cancer is the experience of one of dashed expectations. You don't Mm -hmm. know how long you're going to be healthy, so, you know, things that require a long amount of time, such as having a child or writing a book, seem treacherous. Um, Do you dare, you know, risk fate by um, doing something that might take a long time to accomplish? And having two children... uh seems like a particularly strong affirmation of the possibility of a longer life. Doesn't it? Yeah. And it's a funny thing because I didn't have kids until I was close to 40. And um, I think that having been a childless adult for 20 years before having children makes childlessness seem the norm, (laughs) the Mm -hmm. default mode. And so even now, I wake up in the morning surprised that there are children in my house, and, oh, I have to cook breakfast for them, and, oh, uh, it's this daily surprise. And um, I did, for example, let my hair grow as soon as I gave birth to Faith. In fact, as soon as I looked at her, I had the strange thought, I'm going to let my hair grow out. (laughs) And I think that was a symbol of... uh, realizing I didn't need to keep my hair short because I was going to be, I might need to have chemotherapy, you know, mm. or something. And so why grow my hair out and only to have it, to hack it all off? And 
when she was born and I realized I, I can't die now. I'm in this for, for the long haul. Um, also, she was born with this big, huge head of hair, sort of this very hairy baby. So I decided we would grow our hair out. And so I had long hair for the first time in my adult life as a mother and most recently um, made a decision uh, to have my ovaries out and, and enter surgical menopause as a kind of cancer prevention strategy and so cut all my hair off again as a, not because I'm thinking that I'm about to become a cancer patient again, but rather as a sort of, uh, since I grew my hair out when I, to signify my new reproductive status I, now that I have lost that, um, and I'm not really mourning it, but I did need, a, I felt like I needed an external symbol of this new post-reproductive life that I have again. So now I have the hairstyle I used to have as a cancer patient, but it means something different to me now. In the exquisite uh, introductory passage of Having Faith, uh, you talk about, um, you say, uh, your left hand wriggles out now from the top of your swaddling blanket, but still you do not wake. The pattern of your veins, the pattern your veins make on the back of your hand is identical to my own. I cannot stop staring at you. No wonder mothers claim they cannot remember their labors clearly. You fill all my brain cells. Just the sound of your breathing, which is a miracle, requires my complete attention. The sea smell of your hair, the pulse behind your ear, the butter of your skin. I am so busy memorizing you that I cannot recall anything about my life before today. And then the last lines are, every time I look at you, I think, now I cannot die. I decide your name is Faith. So that incredible pose poetry, really, it seems that uh, your writing is uh, a bridge between your poetry and your science. And uh, you really, I can't think of a stylist who has um, so consciously brought together uh, impeccable science writing and uh, an exquisite uh, style of uh, poetic literature. Well, thank you, but I, I, I think you can, Michael. Um, of course, Rachel Carson is my model in all this, and she's the master of style, and uh, she is the writer whom I consciously mimic, borrow, steal techniques from. I'm always going back to Carson and reading her with a writer's eye to figure out the carpentry of how she can actually achieve that kind of eloquence without emotionalism. And, of course, writing about motherhood is fraught with peril, I think, um, as a writer, because it's, it could be nostalgic, it could be regressive, it could be... Um, overwrought really easily, so how, how to achieve a, a kind of beauty that honors the beauty of the biological system one is writing about without um, falling over into a kind of gushy preciousness is is a real high-wire act, and Carson does it beautifully, and, and whatever success I have, I owe to, um, I owe to her and my um, uh, unashamed borrowing of her techniques. Yes, you're absolutely right. I was thinking of the post-Carson era uh, and, uh, and would, would, would utterly uh, start that uh, lineage with uh, Rachel Carson. Mm -hmm. Since she is, in many respects, your mentor, you have studied her and studied her life. And uh, uh, you told me some very interesting things about how Silent Spring came to be written. Could you briefly describe what you learned about that? 
Well, when I was in uh, a biology professor in Chicago, I first was asked to speak about Rachel Carson, and I actually knew very little about her, which fact became interesting to me as I thought about it. Why, uh, as a biologist and a creative writer myself, did I not really, uh, was I never really asked to read the writings of Rachel Carson? Of course, she was always quoted in a kind of epigram way uh, in, in, the, in the front of textbooks or in the course of lectures, but we, I didn't really, I wasn't really forced to grapple with her work. Um, and yet, when I was asked to speak about her life as a cancer patient in 1992, I believe, um, and I didn't even know that she'd had cancer, I was so kind of shocked and ashamed that uh, after the lecture was over, I went straight away to the, her archives in the Beinecke Library at Yale and just started reading not only her published work but all of her unpublished writings as well. And this was in the day before uh, Linda Lear wrote her wonderful biography and before her letters were published. Um, and it became apparent that Carson herself had not really planned to write Silent Spring. She was the very lyrical author of books about the ocean um, that in the 1950s had become so successful it allowed her to um, take an early retirement from her job as a public servant scientist in uh, the Department of Fish and Wildlife in the U.S. government. Uh, and it was only when it became apparent to her that widespread and reckless use of pesticides were, uh, as she said, were kind of being thrown against the web of life, um, she felt compelled to deploy her skills both as a biologist and as a best-selling author to try to bring attention to this. And as she said, what she, her, she saw her job as pulling out of the technical literature all of the evidence where it was soundproofed away from the public so that the public could hear the debates that were actually raging in the government at the time of, of, as to the wisdom of using chemicals, chemical poisons as a control for not only insects in agriculture, but as, you know, gypsy moth and mosquitoes, and it was used in forestry, and it was just out of control. And she felt the public needed to know about this scientific debate that was, ha that was being waged in the technical journals. And so she set out to be a, a translator um, for that, and and did it, of course, brilliantly. And it it I realized as I was reading her private papers in the library that I had had a parallel experience with cancer, and that it had become my uh, observation that there was a disconnect between what we in the scientific community know about the environmental links to cancer, which is a, quite a lot actually. Uh, and it's all available in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. But there's a disconnect between that body of knowledge and, and what a cancer patient actually hears when they're diagnosed. So I made a little challenge to myself as I was in and out of many, many oncology offices, urology offices, gastroenterology offices, um, and spent a lot of time in, in various waiting rooms to, to pick up the pamphlets in the waiting room and see if I could find the word environment or carcinogen anywhere in those pamphlets. A lot of them are published by the National Cancer Institute of the American Cancer Society, the ones that are like, you know, so you have bladder cancer. You know, it's kind of the, uh, a, a patient's first uh, entree into what we know about bladder cancer. And so when patients ask that inevitable, inevitable question, why me, they're not really given um, what I see as a biologist as 
a logical summary of what the state of the knowledge is about uh, cancer in the environment that's just left out of the story. So I began to see that my role in this world, my calling was to build a bridge between what the public knows and what scientists know in the same way that Carson tried to do that a generation earlier. Why do you think that uh, the National Cancer Institute and the American Cancer Society uh, do not summarize the, what, what the science tells us about the causes of cancer? Well, I have my own personal opinions about that, but that is not something I've actually turned my attention to really a rigorous understanding of in the way that you and other um, thinkers and scholars have done. Um, certainly, I think, in um, when it comes to the American Cancer Society, I think they are being, um, I don't know what the word is, kind of... Uh, hijacked somehow by corporate influences in ways that I don't entirely understand. Um, you may have a, a clear understanding of the kind of interlocking structures between um, that particular charity and, and, and the corporate powers that influence it. I'm certainly interested in um, Che's ongoing conversation with the Canadian Cancer uh, society, which seems to be more able to uh, represent accurately the state of the evidence when it comes to the environment's role with with cancer. So I don't exactly know about that, but I, what I do know in terms of the of the um, the biology of it is that there se there does seem to be a double standard when it comes to scientific uncertainty. So that when scientific uncertainty is high with with, with regards to indiv so-called individual risk factors over which individuals have control, we nevertheless promulgate them anyway. So we're not afraid to tell somebody as an individual that you should, let's say, lower the fat in your diet or eat more fruits and vegetables or exercise more, even when the evidence linking them to cancer protection is actually fairly low or the data are contradictory. Um, we still tell people that they should do these things. Um, on the other hand, when it comes to risk factors that are societal, that, that are involuntary, such as chemical contaminants that we're exposed to from our systems of agriculture or our systems of industry, uh, and there's a certain amount of uncertainty about those too, then the uncertainty is used to justify hesitating and not saying that, um, pesticide residues in food and water and air, for example, um, are linked to cancer. If there's uncertainty in that data, we, we don't turn around and tell agriculture and industry to cease and desist or change their behaviors. So I, I, and, and there's not a difference in scientific evidence there. There's a difference in the culture, I believe, that allows us more freely to tell an individual victim of cancer to make these changes where we won't we wouldn't turn around and ask um, our systems of of agriculture and industry or uh, the way we deliver goods and services we're not as free to offer solutions at that level and I, I suppose it's a cultural phenomenon about American culture it seems very specific to being an American and I think it has something to do with the way we think of health as in a very individual um, Trait, you know, we're all kind of we're all seen as captains of our own boat, and 
uh, health is part of what we are supposed to be able to control as an individual. So it doesn't quite compute in the minds of a lot of people that our health may be affected by these larger structures. You said in your interview with Steve Heilig of the San Francisco Medical Society uh, on the website of the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, you mentioned CHE, which is the acronym for the Collaborative on Health and the Environment. You said in that interview uh, when he asked uh, who inspires you in your work, you said every single organic farmer I've ever met inspires me. And indeed, you've written some beautiful pieces about uh, organic agriculture, including uh, a piece of sort of a, uh, I don't have the title in front of me, but a, a kind of a manifesto or a set of principles of uh, why organic farming matters. Can you speak to the question of why you were so inspired by organic agriculture and what the principles are that lead you to believe that organic agriculture is particularly important to our health in the world? Sure, I'll be glad to. And I think I'm probably most eloquent on that topic in that uh, publication you mentioned, which is called um, The Organic Manifesto of a Biologist Mother. And I'm pleased to say that that's one of the pieces of writing that I've done that's not copyrighted. Therefore, it's available on the web for free downloading. And um, it's fun to see that um, essay has had this life of its own. Um, it's been translated into Dutch and other languages. It's a been reprinted in countless cooperative newsletters, and it was even published in a little booklet form that was just big enough for farmers to carry in their breast pocket. Oh, it was actually out in the fields with the farmers and the farm workers. And so I can't always do that as a person who sings for my supper as a writer. I rely on copyrights and things right. like that, but that was a real joy uh, to pull, pull that together. Um, so what I say in, that, uh, in the Organic Manifesto and what I often say when I lecture at farm conferences, which are, which are my favorite venues to do public speaking at, by the way, um, is that organic agriculture is really part of good prenatal care. Um, we know that uh, children who have prenatal exposures to pesticides are at higher risk for um, all kinds of things, from birth defects um, to preterm birth, um, and preterm birth is the leading cause of disability in the United States. Um, pesticides are linked to learning disabilities. They affect our brains. Um, they affect our risk for cancer. And the exciting thing about talking about agriculture is, well, there's a couple exciting things. First of all, it's the part of our uh, economy that's in some ways moving in the right direction. Organic agriculture is the most rapidly rising sector of agriculture right now, and uh, and the other thing is that people are out very eager to know what they should do, what can they do, um, and, and telling people to support organic farming is, is a lot different than telling people to buy bottled water, for example, or shop by this or by that. I don't really believe that most of our problems are something we can shop our way out of, but on the other hand, we all have to eat. Eating is an ecological act. It's the most ecological thing we do, and we do it three times a day. And because we have to buy food anyway, by directing our food dollars to local organic farmers who are uh, growing food without the use of these chemicals that cause cancer, are linked to birth defects and preterm birth, then we are 
putting our food dollars in the hands of people who are making the world a better place and a more sustainable place. And so that's and it's exciting as a writer to be part of this growing social movement. And at the same time, organic farmers make more money than conventional farmers, and we are also strengthening our rural communities and preventing urban sprawl. So therefore, we're contributing to um, a solution to global climate change at the same time. So, so I, I like what Wendell Berry says. He says, solve for pattern. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, buying local organic food is one of those small things that you can do that have huge ramifications for the world and then a, a demonstrable um, ramification for the health of your children. Children who eat organic food have demonstrably lower uh, uh, levels of pesticide in their urine, for example, and so it's just a win-win uh, situation all around. And then on a sort of spiritual level, I guess I should say my family still farms in Illinois, and so I grew up thinking about farms and the farmhouse that my great-grandfather built, um, that my um, four generations of my mother's family lived in, where I learned to breastfeed my daughter, where all my Thanksgiving dinners were uh, held. Uh, I, I just feel close to farmers and farming, and I'm pleased to say that my own family farm now is undergoing its transition to certifiable organic and oh, I'll, yeah, I'll no doubt be, as the, as the farm goes through its various paces and finally becomes a certified farm, um, we, we're, it's the great hope that this farm in central Illinois will not become part of the whole export commodities market, corn and beans kind of machine that it, it had turned into, but will actually return to this sustainable place and contribute to the local food security of the people who live there. So I'll, I'll undoubtedly be writing about that in the years to come. One of the most powerful moments I ever uh, experienced with you was in Geneva when my wife Cheryl Patton and I were involved, Cheryl much more than I, in the international negotiations for the Stockholm Convention, which is the treaty to ban 12 of the most toxic chemicals in the world. And you came to that meeting along with Pete Myers and others, other scientists uh, at our uh, invitation to uh, uh, give a talk as part of a panel for the delegates uh, who were going to decide on this uh, treaty. And many of the delegates didn't know a great deal about the science, about the impact of these chemicals on human health. And at the time, you were nursing your daughter, Faith, and uh, you stood up to give your talk, and in the course of the talk, early in the course of the talk, you took a small uh, little uh, bottle of uh, your breast milk, which you had expressed uh, uh, earlier, uh, just a little earlier because the milk was still warm, and you passed it out to the delegates in this hall so that they could hold it and pass it among them as you spoke. And after the talk, there was just this stunned feeling in the room. And many of the delegates said that they would never experience chemicals in mother's milk again the same way. Can you remember some of the things that you said about breast milk and chemical contaminants in that talk? I think I can. I 
wanted very much to make clear to the delegates that there were really true, two true things about breast milk. And one is that it's absolutely the best food for human infants. There just is no substitute for it. it you know, breast milk is literally alive. It's swarming with white blood cells that protect babies against infectious diseases until their own immune system can get set up. It has 130 different oligosaccharides in it whose job it is to go into the brain and serve as blazes along these trails that migrating infant neurons are supposed to follow so so a brain can get wired up correctly, which is why breastfed babies go on to have better eyesight, um, better hearing, higher IQ, better balance and coordination, etc. And so I wanted to talk about the kind of glories of breast milk. Um, On the other hand, the other true thing about breast milk is it's the most chemically contaminated food on the planet for which there is no substitute. And so running back to the bottle of infant formula, which is a kind of inferior pretender to breast milk, is not the solution here. And so that's a very hard place to be, to hold those two true things. It's the best food for babies, and it's the most contaminated human food on the planet. How can we hold that in our head at the same time? And it seemed to me that if we could actually hold the bottle of breast milk in our hands and look look at it, um, and you can see, I mean, it looks very different from cow's milk, obviously. it's First of all, it's not white. It, it tends to reflect whatever the food is <laughs> that the woman herself is eating. And so when I would express breast milk and freeze it, I'd have this whole rainbow of colors, depending on whether I had spinach salad or carrots or whatever <laughs> it is. And so I wanted people to see that. It's, a, it's an ecological substance that changes as the baby's need changes, as the mother's diet changes. And yet I wanted them to say, you know, to hold in their hands a liquid that, that they'll never hold another he- human food that has more dioxin, more pesticides, more flame retardants, more rocket fuel than, than this. Because and we live at the top of the food chain. Because human infants are one rung higher than we adults, that's right. And it seemed to me that it was the sort of ultimate audiovisual aid to um, to do this. And I was quite nervous about it. Uh, and And in fact... I get nervous just thinking about doing it now. Uh, and I did notice that people treated it very differently. There were some people who actually held the bottle up to the light like a glass of fine wine and kind of swirled it around and really looked at it. And <laughs> that was were, probably the French. <laughs> <laughs> and there were other men in particular who just couldn't even touch the outside of the bottle, who, who treated it almost like it was radioactive waste, who just kind of scooched it along. And then there were women delegates who looked at it with this great familiarity and smiled at it as if it were the baby itself, you know. So there was every possible range of human response in that room. But I figured, well, at the very least, you know, everyone will remember this moment, whether they thought it was absolutely inappropriate or a light bulb went on in their head. It was an unforgettable moment. And that that, uh, experience with the breast milk, uh, you've written... uh, in a number of places and also in, in your interview with Steve Heilig that that uh, really your early experience with bladder cancer and your understanding of the role of environmental contaminants in bladder cancer as the, the quintessential environmental cancer in many respects uh, sort of prepared you for the 1990s and this explosion of interest in uh, environmental factors in breast cancer. Uh, and you've been deeply involved with uh, the environmental health breast cancer movement uh, and the science on it. Um, you've written and and said that 
in a sense, the understanding of uh, the role of environmental contaminants in breast cancer has moved from one complexity to another in some sense. I don't think I have your exact words. Um, but that you wrote that before uh, Julia Brody and her colleagues from Silent Spring Institute published their new papers in Cancer, the magazine of the American Cancer Society. How would you summarize what we know about the role of environmental contaminants in breast cancer now? I think that we know that they play a really important role and that they seem to play a bigger role than inher inherited factors. Um, but the, the specific, it's, it's like a, a ball of string following e any one individual thread from one chemical exposure to a demonstrable cancer risk is really hard for breast cancer, harder than for bladder cancer or for almost any other cancer I've studied. And, and it, it, mo the more we learn, the more complex the story gets. So it's not getting any easier, but we have shed a lot of light in the last year, I think, as cancer activists and researchers on the question. And what we're realizing is that it's really the timing of exposure that's important. And it's as important, or it may be even more important than the dose of the exposure. And of course, Pete Myers has been so instrumental in developing a language to talk about the importance of timing. But the breast is an organ that begins its development in prenatal life. It's laid down, the mammary ridge is laid down by six weeks of, into pregnancy. And then it continues its development um, in a very indeterminate way, depending on a woman's own reproductive history, through um, puberty. And then it doesn't really finish developing until a woman experiences a, a full-term pregnancy and lactates. And then with each subsequent pregnancy, a woman basically grows a whole new set of breasts. You can't see that from the outside, but with every every time a baby is weaned, the breast involutes, and then with every subsequent pregnancy, all the breast ducts grow again. And uh, and so you can begin to understand. Uh, I mean, that's different than you know your liver, your pancreas, your brain. Um, that not only is an exposure at age five different from an ex diff than a, an exposure at age forty-five but that a 45-year-old woman who had her first child at 13 is at different risk than a 45-year-old woman who just had her first child five years ago. Um, and, and so doing all, all, this, all the tools we usually deploy, case-controlled studies, cohort studies, to understand uh, the epidemiology of breast cancer don't work as well with the breast as, as with other organs. In spite of all that complexity, Julia Brody and her colleagues, uh, especially Ruth Ann Riddell, the toxicologist who published the companion paper on the toxicology of mammary carcinogens, have done a remarkable job in uh, showing us the, which chemicals do seem to be linked to cancer, both in animal and in human studies. And I think that with the breast almost more than with any other organ at some point, we just have to say that the precautionary principle has to apply here, that any chemical that's known to alter the development of the mammary gland in ways that appear to raise the risk of breast cancer really has no role to play in our economy, whether it's an industrial chemical, a consumer product, an air pollutant, or uh, an agricultural chemical. And it needs to be a national priority to phase the chemicals that Brody and Rudell have I now identified. We need to phase these out of use in production and find non-toxic substitutes.
You've more recently been thinking and writing about early puberty in girls. Um, could you say a little about what you've discovered about early puberty? Sure. I was asked to do this work by the Breast Cancer Fund, and it has consumed the better part of uh, the last year of my life. It turned into a big project. And so my monograph on um, the falling age of puberty in girls is about to be published by the Breast Cancer Fund as a standalone monograph, and I try to bring some plain spoken English to some very complex neuroendocrinology. So although it's been peer-reviewed um, and is fully referenced, I intend it for the sophisticated lay public, so my hope is that anybody, even without uh, any advanced degree in science, could understand um, what the story on puberty is, and it will be released probably sometime next month by the Breast Cancer Fund, both electronically and as a report. And again, it's not copyrighted. And we've got some wonderful support um, from different um, foundations to make it freely available to the public without charge. So I'm happy about that. So in a couple of sentences, what I discovered was that, uh, indeed, um, pubertal timing it has been changing among U.S. girls over the last few generations. Uh, it is true that the age of menarche, which is to say the age at which girls get their first periods, is going down, although that's not as big a story as the story about what's happening with breast development. Age of menarche is declining slightly. Um, I'll, I'll just personalize this. When I was 11 and a half, I, um, well, I'll say it this way. When I was 13 and a half, I got my period. And that was 1972. And when I looked at the data for 1972, it turns out I was just a little bit on the uh, late bloomer end of things. Um, I think that uh, the average for girls in 1972 for getting their first periods is about 12.8 years. Now for white girls, it's about 12.6 years. So in, in the course of between my lifetime and my daughter's lifetime, um, let's see, I'm 47 now. I was 13, so that's, uh, what, 34 years have gone by. Um, that we've in those three and a half decades, in other words, we've dropped the average age of menarche among white girls by just a couple of months, and that's part of a long time trend. However, when you look at breast development, we've in the, in the, during that same time span, we've dropped the onset of breast development by more than a year. So the real story here seems to be that we have backed up the beginning of puberty and widen the window between when a girl's breasts first start to develop and when she gets her first period. That's not a good thing because it means that a girl is being exposed to uh, estrogen from her ovaries without ovulating. So that means she's just being exposed to estrogen and she has a very wide estrogen window and we believe from animal studies and other human evidence that that is a risk factor for breast cancer and indeed um, age at menarche um, is related to breast cancer risk. The earlier your sexual maturation, the higher your risk as a, um, for breast cancer as an adult, all other things being equal. So the stakes are fairly high here. Another thing I learned when I wrote this paper, which I didn't expect, um, was what happens to girls' brains um, by uh, hastening their sexual maturation. It turns out that the brain undergoes radical remodeling during puberty and uh, the, uh, the uh, proportion of white matter to gray matter changes, the neurotransmitters change. It's astonishing, actually, when you look at the neurology of puberty. It is as uh, big a change as what you see in uh, fetal brain growth development. So the brain in entirely changes around, 
And it appears that the, the, the sort of function and purpose of all this is to allow for higher order thought. So with puberty comes the ability to do abstract thinking, to see both sides of an issue, to feel empathy, um, that kind of thing. Um, on the other hand, you lose a lot when you go through puberty, and what you lose is the ability for complex learning. So to do complex learning, you need a plastic brain, and that is the kind of brain you have when you're a child. So, to, for example, learn a foreign language that requires cognitive learning, but also your mouth and your tongue have to learn things. To learn a sport, to learn the piano, to learn how to ride a bicycle, these are all complex tasks, and you do them better before you go through puberty. So if you want to speak a foreign language without an accent, you actually have to learn it before you go through puberty. Once the pu pubertal resculpturing of the brain happens, you can't do that anymore. So what does it mean that we have now knocked a year off of the childhood of, of U.S. girls over the course of a generation or two? What does it mean for their ability to learn certain things, to have less experience in the brain when it goes through uh, pubertal, pubertal remodeling to become an adult brain? And, um, and what does it mean for learning and education? And that, those are absolutely unexplored questions. So now that I'm done with this monograph, I, I think I will turn my attention to understanding um, more about the educational ramifications of this for the minds and brains of, of girls and women. Um, I'll, I'll, I'm sure that will also become a part of a future writing project of mine. That's really fascinating. I hadn't heard you describe uh, those changes in that depth before, and it's an important and powerful piece of work. I wanted to go back to the first question I asked you about what it's like to be a mother and uh, raising Faith and Elijah. You've worked mostly on issues of environmental contaminants and human health, but we're living in a world where not only do we face environmental contaminants, but clearly we face climate change. There's the ongoing uh, globalization of uh, an industrial sector that operates as if uh, growth could go on forever. Um, there is a, a war system uh, that hasn't seemed to change very much. Um, the problem of global poverty remains. In your inner world and in your imagination, where do you hold the hope for humanity in this? And as your children get old enough to ask you about the world, what can you imagine saying to them about what it means that they're growing up into a world where we are facing really virtually a, an inevitable uh, degradation of the web of life, which... Rachel Carson, your mentor, wrote so eloquently about. How do you hold that yourself, and how do you think about talking to your children about where the hope is? Right. right. Well, it's a, ch it's a changing place to be for me as my children get older, as you, as you uh, imply. When they were just a year or two younger, I, uh, I act actively hid things from them, including my own writings. Uh, because I, I felt that I wanted them to simply enjoy living in the world. And um, uh, the poet Denise Levertov, who's been important to me at various points in my life, um, has a poem that became the title of one of her books called Oh, Taste and See. And that's how I want to, that's kind of my philosophy of parenting, Oh, Taste and See. I want my children to go out into the world 
and uh, wade in that pool and try that ice cream and discover things. And it really is the responsibility of adults to fix the things that are wrong. Children should just develop a sense of wonder, to use Rachel Carson's own words about it. Um, But as they uh, grow and they hear things and ask questions, um, I have begun now the task of talking to them about some of what I do. And it's become... um, Easier, it was easier than I thought to do that. I think for my experience um, as a parent, I, I'm also a Quaker, and, and, and therefore I teach first-day school on Sundays to a group of children, including my son, who's five. And in my experience as their teacher, the turning point for the kids came this summer in upstate, this winter in upstate New York, when we had a January in, in, the, in the 70s, and Everybody, including my son, had new skates and new sleds, and and there were flowers blooming, and people were in shirt sleeves, and it was odd. And and even my son would say, "Remember when I was little, and we had snow in winter?" And and the, and the children, all these Quaker children, would talk about it. And one would say, "I know what's wrong with the earth. It's getting too hot." and the polar bears are drowning, and they would compare what they had heard on the radio or what their parents had said until they came up with, together, this group of five-year-olds came up with this whole theory of climate change. It was actually remarkably accurate. And That's then it, I, Yeah. And so, and because the children are not in, so invested in our, our old habits, they had interesting solutions, you know. And Elijah said, I remember very clearly, on his way home on that very... Su- 70-degree January day, he said, when I grow up, I won't have a car because I like polar bears. And then my daughter said, why can't we put solar panels on cars, Mama? And so they are solutions thinkers in ways that adults, I think we get out of the habit of letting ourselves be visionary. And so now I have allowed my children to see uh, more about why we do the things we we do, you know the fact that we're trying to be a family of four in a house that only has a thousand square feet. You know, we there are good ecological reasons to learn to live in a small house. So we I spend a lot of time talking to them about well, we don't use as much natural gas. You know, we only have one car because you know the following reasons. We're going to walk to the farmers market because the following reasons. And it's become uh, a joyful thing, not um, something that they feel depressed about. And so I think some of what adults do in the way they deny and turn away from climate change because they're so worried about their children, you know, if, they, if they think about it and talk about it, the children will be filled with despair. They're really talking about themselves as adults, that they can't handle it because my experience at least has been that uh, children can handle quite a lot of information and, and they don't they don't give up easily. They don't say, "Well, then there's no hope. We're all just going to die." Um, they are, they in fact say, "Oh, well, then we have to fix things. What can we do?" And they they jump right away to this, the solutions part of it. Sandra, in the last couple of minutes that we have, you mentioned that you're a Quaker. Quakers practice a what we might call a generative silence, uh, in which one uh, sits in a circle and. Uh, people speak as uh, as they are moved to. Uh, 
what is the meaning of your uh, Quaker uh, uh, your Quaker uh, beliefs for you? Well, it came to me later in life. I, I have to say, I wasn't raised a Quaker. There's two kinds of Quakers: Quaker by birth and Quaker by convincement, as they say. And I was happy to learn that Quakers by convincement are con- <laughs> are considered by some to be more like the true Quakers because the original Quakers, of course, were Quakers by convincement. And as an adopted person, I like uh, a spiritual belief where the ones who are the converts are, you know, right. the, the, the truer ones. Right. Um, and I came to it after 9-11 when uh, I was, I had, a, at that point, Elijah was only a few weeks old and I was suddenly the mother of a son and we were going to war and I felt the need to wrap my child in some kind of tradition of nonviolence of which the Quakers are so well known. Um, for his own protection, in case he needed to be a conscientious objector someday. And so I showed up at Quaker meeting thinking, as mothers do, if I have to sit for 18 years in a meeting and hear things I don't believe in, um, for the sake of my son, I'll do it. And then I discovered, um, long story short, that somehow I was a Quaker my whole life and I just didn't hadn't known it yet. And so for me to go into our meeting house, especially the older one where we worship in the summer, um, where people who for generations have sat in these same old benches before me, people who stopped slavery, people who got women the right to vote, people who worked on um, on the Cold War, people who were objecting to the Vietnam War, people who worked on the Civil Rights Movement. All these people have come here and thought about very complicated, hard human problems and, and then turned their silence and their witnessing into action. And I, I draw, I see myself as a social critic in a long line of other social critics, of which Quakers are just kind of one, you know, thread in this whole big garment. And it feels good to feel, since I don't have biological ancestors, I think of all these Quakers who worked on the civil rights movement and abolitionism and women's suffrage, I think of them as my ancestors. And to go into this place where they sat in silence, is, it inspires me. Because what I do as a writer and a biologist, I feel, is is, is really part of, my belief as a Quaker of, of speaking out in time of great extremity and, wit- and witnessing. Sandra, thank you for your work, thank you for your life, and thank you for being with us at the New School. Well, thank you, Michael, for giving me a voice. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. This program was pre-recorded with a live telephone audience. If you would like to join future conversations, please email us at the New School at commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. And please visit our website, where you'll find full-length recordings of all new school conversations, as well as information on upcoming events. Our website address is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Thank you for joining us.